Amen. James chapter 1, verses 22 to 27. And in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I share this passage? But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. I did forget one announcement. That is that D. Um, D. Barden's memorial service is going to be a graveside service on a, on a Wednesday, November second, at one p.m. If you need more information, please do uh, get in touch with me. So James began his letter telling us to count it all joy when we face trials. That that we started off with that. Uh, Whoa, what? <laughs> but trials means. Uh, Afflictions, it can also be translated temptations. So count it all joy when you face temptations. Hmm? One temptation that we have, he's already addressed, is to speak what shouldn't be spoken. In a previous passage, we were commanded to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because man's anger doesn't bring about the righteousness of God. He tells us to receive the implanted word which can save our souls and to act on what we've heard. Of course, that word is the word of God. He became flesh and he dwelt among us. While James' emphasis is on doing, we know that without Christ, the living word, we can do nothing. Some of you got it already. John 15, 5, without him, we can do nothing. So as we go through this passage, keep in mind that um, doing is joyfully yielding to the implanted word instead of yielding to temptation. It's his life in us that enables us to be doers of the word. Verse 22, again, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You know, in Hebrew, um, that word to, uh, to hear, the command to hear that we see in the Shema, that uh, the Shema that the Hebrews or the Jews quote several times a day, that word hear doesn't mean just to let it go in your ear. It means to receive it and act on it. Our word here just means to listen for, but it doesn't include the, the action. But in Hebrew, it does. And the Jewish culture carries that on. 
And the Shema again, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Do you see how the two came together? First he says, Hear, he's one Lord, he's indivisible, and yet it's a plural there, and by the word, uh, that word one is used in, first in Genesis chapter 1, talking about the morning and the evening. Often that word is used for multiple things being a united thing, such as the Trinity. So you see this link here. The Lord is one, then do it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. So hear and do. But when we read the Bible... Or when we sit in a church service, we often hear and just go our way. Even the greatest of commands, we fall short of obeying. In that case, according to this verse in James, we're deceiving ourselves. We think we're good Christians, we're doing our duty, but we don't have faith in what we heard. For if we did, by the grace of God, we would want to do it. We would have a desire to do it. We would, we would be motivated to live out what we've heard. It doesn't mean a, a thing to us unless we do something about what we've heard. The Bible's not just an information book. It's God's invitation to a relationship with him. Jesus taught the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. He told the crowd that, Whoever hears his sayings and puts them into practice is like a man who built his house on the rock. But those who hear the sayings and don't do them are like a man who builds his house on the sand and the storm comes and destroys the house. The next verse gives us an illustration of, of what this is like. Verse 23 and 24, For if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, He's like the man who looks intently at his face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he looked like. So when we read God's word or, or hear it preached and do not act on what we heard, James tells us that we're like someone who gets up in the morning, intently looks at his face in the mirror and he says, ah, my hair's a mess. I got crusties in the corner of my eyes. I think there's a little drool there. And I got two days of stubble. Then he gets in his car and goes to work. And he can't figure out why everyone's staring at him. We read in the beginning of the chapter to count it all joy when we face these various kinds of trials. But when trials come, do we do that? Or do we whine and complain? We read that to ask God for wisdom, but then when we face a crisis, we run to man instead of to God for wisdom. We doubt God will answer our prayer, and we forget that earlier in this chapter it said a doubter shouldn't think he'll get anything from the Lord. We heard, but we don't let our heart be changed by what we heard so that our actions would follow. And that, he says, is being self-deceived. It's like the people who heard Ezekiel. This is Ezekiel 33, verses 30b through 32. 
come and hear what the word that comes from the Lord. And they come to you as people come and they sit before you as my people and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths, they act. Their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you're like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. The scriptures give us a mirror of our flaws. When we study God's word, we can easily see where we're falling short. I was just looking recently as the men were going through Thessalonians and, and reading how Paul said that he wanted them to be imitators of him. And he saw how they imitated him in their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus. And I thought to myself, would I be comfortable asking all of you to imitate me? In Philippians, Paul tells the church to keep their eyes on those who follow his example. Would my example cause others to have works of faith, labors of love, steadfast hope in the Lord? Well, I would hope so. But at the same time, I'm aware of my own shortcomings. I look in the mirror of God's word and I don't want to forget what I saw, where I need to change and actively participate, cooperate with the Holy Spirit in making those changes. I pray for the zeal of the Lord to consume me, that by doing what I hear, I might be pleasing the Lord whom I love. You know, Home Depot says its stores are how doers get things done. But James tells us it's by looking into the mirror of God's word that shows us how to be doers and how that results in a blessed life. Verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The sentence began with, but, and thank God for those conjunctions that God puts in the Bibles, the, the ands and the buts, because if we just left ourselves at the last verse, we'd think, oh, there's no hope for me. But here he says, if we will stop where we fail to, to hear God's word, we're hopeless, but if we continue to persevere and look into that perfect law of liberty, our spiritual mirror, by God's grace, we can act on it. Let's examine why James is comparing the law of liberty to a mirror. What did Christ set us free from? From sin, which is defined in the Old Testament in 613 laws of the Old Covenant. But he also set us free from the judgment that those sins deserve That law teaches us that Christ took the punishment for our sins. Yes, even in the Old Testament, the Lord is our righteousness. And of course, Isaiah 53, he will bear our iniquities. 
So we're also freed from the enslavement of sin, how it had mastery over us. Paul uses that term. We see that in the law that someone paid the debt that we owed. The love that could do such a gracious thing for me causes me to want to be righteous in return. Paul wrote, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for, for the flesh, but through love serve one another. We're freed from all those do's and don'ts of the law, but the moral laws that still describe a life that pleases God. Murder is still wrong because God is the giver of life. Theft is wrong because God gave someone else the opportunity to steward that thing. Adultery is wrong because God is faithful. A life of wisdom is going to be expressed in righteousness in everyday living, but not under compulsion, but rather out of a heart of gratitude and love, a desire to express that love in all that we do. This is where the law of liberty and the law, these moral laws of God's nature, meet together in joyful expression, in service. If one looks into the perfect law of liberty and, James says, and perseveres. Again, let's pause for a second and think about what that's saying. We look into the word, the, that mirror of the moral law, and we persevere. We see where we fall short, and then we surrender those strongholds of our, that old nature to God. We persevere in this battle of flesh against spirit, and we remember what we've heard from the Lord the corrections that we saw in God's word and where our actions were falling short. Not because we must, but because we're free to and the desire of the new nature is to live in a way that's pleasing to God. This is when we find our lives are blessed, not necessarily with prosperity as was the case in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant, but spiritually blessed with the fruits of the Spirit, with joy and peace. We find the fruits of the Spirit are increasingly manifest in our lives. The love, joy, and peace that we always long for are ours in Jesus, and they overflow from our lives to others. James wrote that we need to persevere, and that means it doesn't come instantly. The battle is a lifelong battle. But each victory matures us and prepares us for the next battle. Our faith is being polished and strengthened. We find our satisfaction in Jesus and we start to lean more and more on his strength. Our faith is refined and is a shield to, to take those enemies' fiery darts. We don't want to be like that seed that fell in that shallow soil and sprang up suddenly, but then when the heat of the sun came because it had no root, it died. If we want to get to that place of blessing, we must persevere, learn our lessons, draw near to God, keep looking into that perfect law of liberty, and let the life of Jesus be manifest in our daily lives. Paul uses that expression in 2 Corinthians 4.10. 
that's a blessed doer who acts on the word that he hears. Verse 29, if anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless. How do we know if we've looked intently into the law of liberty and we're now a blessed doer who acts? Well, James gives us some litmus tests. And this first one is, is our tongue bridled? You know, like a bridle on a horse. We put a bridle on a horse to steer its head, to go the direction we want it to go. Is our tongue bridled? Is our born-again spirit applying the word of truth as a bridle over things that we say? Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If our tongue is quick to justify our actions, to condemn others, gossip, to slander, to complain, to murmur against the God who allowed what we have deceived our own hearts. We thought we were religious, we thought we were spiritually mature, but the words coming out of our mouths are a sign that we've got a long ways to go. When I introduced this series on James, I told you we're going to be challenged to see if our faith is genuine. We'll see where our actions fall short. And James has hit on several already in this first chapter. Complaining about trials, doubting God, the sin of partiality, thinking that God's tempting us. And now he's addressing how we allow our old nature to shoot out a comment that defends our ego or wounds other people. That's not being, as James said in verse 19, quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. We're not applying what we hear so that we act on the word that saves us from this present evil world. James declares that a person's religion is worthless. Why? because it hasn't changed their heart. It's a set of beliefs that leave us as the same fallen person we were before. Religion may make us feel good about ourselves or, or give us an emotional high, but we're still the same person we used to be, just like the rest of the world, speaking the same rude, vulgar things that, that just come to mind or things to impress other people. We're not hearing God's word or asking for wisdom on what to say or how to say it. We should recognize that for some people, this looks like an instant transformation. Um, I, it, actually, I kind of see that in Rhonda, this quick change from one way to another. But for most of us, it is a lifelong journey. Amen? I hear a few people acknowledge that. We learn from each failure. We're grieved each time. But that's a sign that the Spirit of God is working in us. And little by little, we find His grace helping us to change. If there's no effort and no desire to change, that's a sure sign that we are deceiving ourselves. Jesus said in John 12, 49, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. 
Did you catch that? NIV says that Jesus looked to the Father for what to say and how to say it, which is a legitimate translation for the Greek there. What to say and how to say it. Can you imagine if you always look to God for what to say and how to say it? That if you didn't say anything without looking to God first? Well, we're to follow his example. Amen? I know I fall short of that incredible example, but that's our goal. Keep the reins of our tongues held tightly back until we hear what God would have us say and and how he would have us say it. You know, every day I probably have three, four dozen thoughts that roll through my head and I go, oh, better not say that. The Holy Spirit kind of taps me on the shoulder and says, "Mm, just keep quiet. That's a good thing. Maybe it needs to be five dozen, shh, (laughs) keep your mouth closed. We will have a lot more on this topic in chapter three, which is all about the tongue. The final verses of chapter one outline what James is going to address in the ne- in the rest of his letter. Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I see from my actions and words, if I see, from my actions and my words, that my religion is worthless, then what is true religion? And that's what James defines next, religion that's pure and undefiled. Pure, holy, righteous. That means there are religions that are impure and undefiled. defiled. Whatever promotes selfishness, ego, a false sense of spirituality without the new birth of the spirit, and hearing and acting on the word is an impure and defiled religion. Every religion that depends on works for salvation is a defiled religion. Works cannot save us, but works are evidence that we have become a new creation. But what is pure and undefiled before the God, God the Father is to do what's on his heart, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. The word visit in Greek is also translated in our New Testament as overseer. In other words, we don't just drop in and say, hi, hi orphan, hi widow, I did my job, I visited them. No, it means to see their needs and to care to have loving concern and care for them. The cultures of that day saw saw orphans and widows as pretty much worthless, but God made them in his image. He cares for the throwaways of this world. In our culture, it's become the homeless drug abusers. Many are in that condition because of their horrible home lives. The foundation of our society is the family and the family in our culture is collapsing. That doesn't excuse their bad choices or justify their behavior, but they're still precious souls in the eyes of God. They need the love God displayed uh, displayed to them by, by our true caring. 
so that they can begin to have a hope. Widows in that day had almost no means of support. Their affliction refers to the loss of their spouse and the poverty that resulted from it. If they didn't have a male child as an heir, they were desperate. They too were made in the image of God. And while Jews thought to be born of a woman was somewhat of a curse, God made both male and female in his image. We still have the problem today of men dying and leaving behind a widow. Even if they have a male heir, they're often left to fend for themselves. Now, of course, in our culture, our society, it's a lot easier, but in much of the world, that hasn't changed. And that's why we support ministries that teach women in impoverished nations skills to support themselves and then give them the tools to do it. Having a heart for the needy is, according to James here, true religion. Now, we don't want to encourage laziness, and we must discern who is truly in need. The scriptures are clear that we should work so that we can help those in need, Ephesians 4.28. If our religion is worth something, we will give to Christian relief organizations. And I encourage you to, to check their financial records, see what percentage actually goes to the work. Or missions that help orphans and widows, or those in need of it during natural disasters. And that's why we support two local missions. God may direct us or any of you to give to an individual that is in a tight spot through no fault of their own. We have a benevolent fund for those needs. There is also our food pantry, which provides for the homeless, which by the way, is well stocked now. Thank you all. Christians in the first century that would not work tried to live off the generosity of the church. You know, their, their thought was, well, Jesus is coming back, so why should I work? I mean, any day's gonna show up and I'm going to heaven, so I'm not gonna get a job. So they were mooching off their brothers and sisters in Christ, and Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and said, hey, if they don't work, they don't eat. Quit giving them handouts. They're able-bodied people, they can work. So we work to be responsible for our own families and to be able to give, but we must discern who we give to. The next action of pure and undefiled religion is to keep ourselves unstained from the world. That means to be set apart from worldliness, from the love of money, from coveting things, from the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Just as God called Israel out of Egypt, he calls Christians out of the world system. We enter the kingdom of God with new priorities and a different reason for living. We have new motivations. Our selfishness is nailed to the cross of Jesus and we yield our decisions to our savior. That's what it means when you call him Lord. When we will at times find our, ourselves uh, yielding to that old nature, we repent and we turn to the life of Christ in us. This is the process of sanctification and we'll be at it until we pass from this life. And thankfully, the scripture promises when we see Jesus, we will be like him. 
because we will see him as he is. You might ask, well, if it's, if it's not going to be completed until we see him, why, why do we have to strive to be pure and undefiled now? We do so because we're recipients of the greatest love ever shown. Our new nature wants to enjoy the freedom of being unselfish with the ability to, to do the will of God. We delight in being God's instruments in the earth. You know, there's nothing more thrilling than to know that at a particular moment, God is working through you, speaking through you, touching people's hearts through you. The more we experience Jesus, the more we want to experience that liberated life. Far from being boring, it is a joyful adventure. To be holy conjures up, you know, images of this monastic monk locked away and on his knees all day in prayer. But following Christ is far more. While we don't, we do want to spend more time in communion with Jesus in prayer, our daily lives are exciting because we know Jesus has a plan for that day of our life. Psalm 139 says that he's planned every day of our life. We watch with anticipation to see what he, he's going to teach us or how he's going to work through us. We wonder at the grace that would draw us to himself and cause us to be sons and daughters of God. And as we sang earlier, we, I especially am awed and in wonder about the fact that he says in the word he will share his glory with us. I just can't comprehend how incredible that is. In this passage, James has outlined three topics that he's going to address in the rest of the letter. Controlling our tongue, chapter 3. Caring for those in need, chapter 2. And living a sanctified life, chapter 3, 13 through the end. May the grace of God help us hear and do out of love for our Savior. And if you heard the Lord this morning, may you, by the grace of God, act on what you heard. Amen? Amen. Jill, would you lead us in a closing song? And then I'll give the benediction.